Our Bible reading is from John chapter 10, 1 to 21. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and lead... Sorry, I've done that one. But they will never know a follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognise a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Thanks for that, Esther. Uh, I I feel a bit guilty before. I sort of hopped up here and said the pastors are away and it's all left up to a little lonely lonely me. But but have you counted how many people have been up here this morning? There's been a pile. And, And that's not in counting the people down there at the desk not including the people at the door and the people that, that prepare, prepare communion. It's, it's almost a quarter, at least a quarter of the church is involved 
in this service happening each morning and I just played one little part. So it's, it's been a good reminder for me. I've got something out of this morning. Uh, I hope that you do too. Um, now I want to start by t- saying that every now and then a catchy little quote captures my imagination and causes me to, to shift in the way I think, think and the way I behave. Uh, a number of years ago there was one it's not about you. Does anyone remember that phrase? I think it was a Rick Warren phrase, purpose, purpose-driven life. I can't remember anything in that book except for that one phrase, it's not about you. But it caused me to change the way I view the world and my place in it. Well, lately, I've had another little phrase that has captured my imagination. And it's from a bloke called Stephen Covey. He wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I haven't read the book. I've just heard this phrase. The main thing, you got it? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, I know that's complicated. I'll say it again. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's a funny little saying, isn't it? But it's challenged me to ask the question, why? Too often I think uh, I, I focus on how or when, uh, but, but why? So, so I've been adopting this in the way I think and approach things lately. And when I've come to this chapter 10 and the chapter 9 before it uh, in John, I've been asking, why does Jesus do what he does? Why does he often heal people on the Sabbath when he knows it's only going to provoke the Pharisees? Why does Jesus continue to witness to the Pharisees even after they seem to have rejected him? Why did he put a healed man in a position that he had to choose a side? Why does Jesus force us to make a choice, either to trust him fully or reject him completely? Why, why, why? Some of us who are parents remember having kids at one stage just keep on saying, why? But it's a great question. In asking all these why questions, I hope to uncover the purpose that drives Jesus and maybe uncover that elusive purpose that will give our lives worth and drive away the dissatisfaction that often creeps in. So let's, let's continue on. This passage is quite often called the, uh, the Good Shepherd. Um, but I've chosen another phrase because three times in John 10, 1 to 21, Jesus tells us, that, tells us that he does what he does for the sheep. And in that phrase, we have the seed of his purpose. As we dig into the passage, we will see that Jesus acts for all people, all the sheep, even though he knows not all will choose to trust him that amongst all the sheep there are only two groups. Those who, call Jesus, who, sorry, those who Jesus calls my sheep and the other group that he calls not my sheep. Only the two groups. So before we dig deeper, uh, let's put our passage into the context uh, by summarising chapter 9 because I think you need that to understand what's happening in chapter, chapter 10. So chapter 9... Jesus heals a man who has been blind from birth. Can you guess when he healed him? On the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. 
And that's a problem for the Pharisees. So they interview the man who was formerly blind, uh, but they're not united in the decision. We read, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he has not kept the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Despite this, they decided that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They then bring in the man who was formerly blind again, not for an interview this time, but to pressure him to change his testimony. You see, his previous testimony gave honour to Jesus. The Pharisees are calling Jesus a sinner. They want to shame Jesus. And that's the, the society. It's an honour-shame society. There's no middle ground. And often honour is received when the other is shamed. I've got to say, we, we kind of do it too sometimes. We, we feel better if we can make someone else feel worse. Uh, but this was part, this was integral to, to, the, to their society. And the formerly blind man tries to exit the contest when he says, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. What do the Pharisees do? They push harder. And the formerly blind man, knowing that there is no way out, chooses a side. He chooses Jesus. And then he dishes out shame onto the Pharisees. And he does it by the bucket load. Please, after today's service, go and read chapter 9. It's amazing how this bloke made a decision and, and then shamed the Pharisees. This part of the story... Uh, sorry... So he shames the Pharisees. Are the Pharisees repentant? Not on your life. No way. They dig in and they chuck the, the man who was formerly blind out of the synagogue. And this part of the story ends with Jesus finding the formerly blind man and revealing to him, sorry, revealing himself as the promised Messiah. And the man responds in worshipping, saying, Lord, I believe. It's a great story, isn't it? He's been kicked out of the temple only to land in the kingdom. Not a bad exchange, I reckon. The introduction to our passage is, is found in the end of chapter 9. Because Jesus follows on, he says, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked what are we blind too good answer jesus said if you were blind you would not be guilty of sin but now that you claim to see your guilt remains in chapter 10 jesus is addressing these pharisees we've got to read this that he's talking to these pharisees he's talking to them in a public place where there's other people around and in writing this account, John invites us into that story. He invites us to not only listen, to, but, but to place ourselves in that story. Naturally, we want to place ourselves with the other people, the observers. But can I suggest that you'll get more out of this passage if you humbly 
slip on the shoes of the Pharisees. Imagine that you're the Pharisee and Jesus is talking to you. Jesus continues to give the Pharisees a choice. They can open their eyes and be exposed to the light and put their trust in Jesus, that's their first choice, or they can remain blind, stay in darkness and continue to reject Jesus. And Jesus chooses the metaphor of shepherding uh, and it's one that's used throughout the Old Testament and is very familiar to his audience. Not so familiar to us today, maybe. Jesus begins, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. His sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognise a stranger's voice. Now, imagine this is the first time you've, you've ever heard this story. You'd know that there's two type of people that Jesus is mentioning. There's the thief, robber, stranger type. They're the baddies. We can all see that. While the shepherd and the gatekeeper, they're the goodies. It's, it's a simple enough story, isn't it? Yet verse 6 tells us that the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Does Jesus give up? No. <laughs> he wants them to understand and he retells the story, but this time he unpacks some of the symbolism of the metaphor for them. In this metaphor, the gate is the entrance to the sheep pen a place of safety for the sheep. Now, reading up a little bit about it, uh, uh, these, um, these pens, these sheep pens, were permanent structures. Their walls were, were sometimes made out of timber, sometimes made out of stone, but they were high enough to deter wolves and lions. The gate was the only way in. But this image of the gate carries much more meaning in the Old Testament. When we go through some of the scriptures, we find that it is at the gate where people are exposed to God's wisdom. Wisdom calls out from the gate. Prophets often announce the word of God at the gate. And if you want judgment, if you want a case settled, you go down to the gate to have it heard. The gate is in scripture, a formidable place where one encounters God's wisdom, his word and his judgment. Jesus t tells the Pharisees that the gate in this part of the metaphor represents himself. Later we read in John 14 verse 6 that Jesus says, I am the way, adding that no one comes to the Father except through me. The only way into God's presence and protection is through Jesus, the gate. In identifying himself as the gate, Jesus is also saying to the Pharisees, he's saying, Pharisees, you are not the gate. You like to think you're the way to the Father, but you're not. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus does not tell the Pharisees, though, which symbol represents them. Why is that? Anyone want to have a guess why he doesn't tell them which symbol represents them? Loud voice? I heard something. 
Okay, we won't push it too far. We read back in uh, John 9, 16 that uh, they were divided. There was, there was two groups of Pharisees that were leaning either way. One was saying he's a sinner. The other was saying, but how can a sinner heal the blind? They had a choice what they wanted to be in this story. They could identify either as thieves and robbers or they could identify as sheep. The choice was still open to them. Now, this is the first mention of our phrase, for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. And it's easily passed over, but it encapsulates Jesus' motivation for doing what he's doing. He could have said, I am the gate to the sheep pen. That's my job description. I get paid for knowing when to open and when to close. But it's not my purpose in life. But no, Jesus is saying that he is all about the well-being of the sheep. That is his purpose. I'm the gate, whatever enters, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my wife. My wife, Janet, doesn't keep sheep. She doesn't know what I'm saying today. <laughs> but she does keep chooks. And each evening, just before dark, she locks them in their roost, safe from the pythons and foxes that are known to take chooks in our area. But Janet doesn't leave them locked up there. Early each morning, she goes out and she feeds them and she lets them into their run. Then after lunch, she lets them out to, to roam freely until dusk. Janet is the gate for the chooks. She keeps them safe, but also gives them freedom. Janet reckons she provides her chooks with a pretty rewarding life. I'm not looking at my wife because I'm going to laugh. We understand that Jesus saves us from sin, from judgment, from eternal death. They're sort of all images of keeping us safe. And they're things that we desperately need. But we do crave for something more. And this is why Jesus adds, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, Janet, a question for you. How committed to your chooks are you? Are they your life's purpose? No. Thanks for being honest, honey. We are Jesus' life purpose. He wants us to have life to the full. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Too often we associate having a satisfying life with having stuff. Don't we? Yep, I think so. If only I had that car, that job, that partner, that house, then my life would be complete. I'm sure the blind man had often thought, if only I had my sight, then I could truly live. Jesus gave him sight. He gave him that opportunity to truly live. But then he put him into a no-win situation. And in that situation, he had a choice. He could sacrifice his honour and deny Jesus, please the Pharisees, 
and be a full participant in Jewish society. Or he could keep his honour, side with Jesus and get booted back to the fringe of society where he had always been as a blind man. That was his two choices. His costly decision for Jesus gave his life value. When Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah, that man found true peace, joy and fullness of life. You see, pursuing a a worthwhile purpose can be costly, but its rewards give us deep, deep satisfaction. When Jesus said he is the good shepherd, he is in, he's tapping into a, a source of great pride, but also great shame for Israel. And this is encapsulated uh, in the best shepherd that Israel ever had. Anyone want to hazard a guess of who that is? David, no doubt about it. The shepherd boy who became king. And it was David who wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How much has that enriched our lives? But it is also he who did want and took a wife that belonged to another man, killing that man to conceal his shame. It was him to whom God sent the prophet Nathan with a story about a rich shepherd stealing the only sheep of a poor man. And that story caused such rage in David that he judged the offender as deserving of death, only to have Nathan reveal to him that he was the offender. Israel's best shepherd revealed himself to be nothing more than a thief and a robber. The prophets are no kinder to later leaders. I've just got a few verses here. Ezekiel 37 says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Jeremiah says, Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done. And Zechariah Reads, then the Lord said to me, Take again and a, the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts a flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blind so it's all that imagery that that Jesus builds on identifying himself as the good shepherd to replace those evil and worthless shepherds of Israel that have gone before him in fact Jesus goes further he demotes those who claim to be shepherds to being no better than hired hands They're only there for the money. They're only there for the pay. By comparison, Jesus explains that the purpose of the devoted shepherd is to care for the sheep. His devotion includes even laying down his life for the sheep. Again, the Pharisees have a choice to identify as the sheep 
or to identify as the hired hand. In the next few verses, we begin to see a distinction that uh, Jesus makes between the sheep. We read there in verse 13 and 14, a man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Have you, have you spotted the difference? Up until now he's been talking about the sheep. Now what's he talking about? My sheep, my sheep. Later in verse 26 he introduces another category of not my sheep. So my sheep and not my sheep is how the sheep have been divided. The sheep is each and every person. They do not receive God's wisdom, his word, his judgment from Jesus at the gate and they have the opportunity to receive... Sorry, let me start again. Every sheep receives God's word, wisdom and judgment. But they have, and they also have the opportunity to receive salvation from Jesus, the shepherd. However, they can choose not to listen and not to respond to that grace. That's the sheep. Only those people who have entered into a relationship with Jesus receives what Jesus is offering. To the Pharisee, Jesus is giving them an offer of a relationship, but not a relationship of equals. It's one where Jesus is the leader and they are the led. How close is this relationship? Well, it's as close as Jesus' relationship is to the Father. It's an intimate relationship. But let's read on. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now that, this declaration would have stunned the Jewish listeners. They had always understood the shepherd metaphor as applying exclusively to Israel. Now Jesus is saying there are other sheep, Gentile sheep, and they're to be brought back into the flock. Now there had always been individual Gentiles that had converted to Judaism, but they were very few in number. And that's because the Jewish system doesn't lend itself to mass conversion. You see, Judaism is, is something that is communicated, nurtured and clarified through a life fully lived within the context of a committed community. Do you understand that? Basically, you're born a Jew you live a Jew and that's how you understand your faith in that context only. Never, I repeat, never had anyone in Israel or any of the other Near Eastern faiths seen themselves as charged by their God to proselytise to others, to encourage others to take on a new faith commitment to a religious system that they had not known previously. But this is what Jesus is promoting when he says, I must bring them in also. The Father has commissioned Jesus to bring in 
all sheep who will listen to his voice. You see, what distinguishes Christianity from these other faiths before it is its simplicity. Jesus says in John 5.24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from life to death. Isn't that great news? That simplicity. And it's really good news for people like me. I just got my ancestry DNA report back. There's no Jewish DNA in me at all. I have no chance. I can't go back and claim, oh, I'm distantly related. Let me in. But I can be in the fold if I respond to Jesus in belief and from there on follow him. Unreal news. But can you see how this simplicity could be deemed as offensive to the Pharisees? If you're in your Pharisaical shoes and you're looking back and you're saying, hey, I have spent my lifetime earning my place of right standing in this faith community and you're telling me that that counts for nothing? That's their situation and that's what Jesus is saying. Where you've been going has got you nowhere. Listen to me, believe me, follow me. Simple, simple, simple. We read on. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. If you've still got your your Pharisee shoes on, what would you make of this? Laying down your life for a cause? Unlikely, but it is possible. Taking your life up again? Lunacy. Absolute lunacy. For those of us that that wrestle to understand how the death and resurrection of Jesus works, this passage does shed some light. I, I, I think of Adam. Adam was given a very simple command. It cost him nothing at all to do, to, to, to keep it, um, and it was well within his abilities. However, he also had the freedom not to trust God in that, and he chose not to trust God, to disobey God, and the result was death. Here the Father commands the new Adam to die for the sake of all humanity. Jesus knows that it's going to cost him greatly. But here it reveals that he knows also that he is equipped to conquer death. He can come back to life. He has the same freedom as the first Adam, yet Jesus chooses to trust the Father of his own accord. He makes the Father's mission his own mission and the father loves him for it for the sheep who know his voice this is this is absolute joy usually if it was just laying down my life for the sheep the sheep would be left defenseless after that they might be saved at the time but who's going to save them now we're not left defenseless 
Our faith is not merely being saved from sin, death and judgment. It also means that we have a living shepherd that guides, feeds and cares for us. A relationship we have with him that is deep and loving, as deep and loving as the relationship that he has with the Father. You'd be happy to, happy to have that faith, that, that relationship, I should say. The story uh, ends there with uh, the Jews that, uh, who had been hearing these words again divided. And we really go back to uh, that verse, um, chapter 9, verse 16. There the, it was the Pharisees that had been divided, um, that uh, either identified Jesus as a, a Sabbath breaker and a sinner, but there were some of them that argued, how can a, a sinner perform such signs? Now the Jews are divided because he's talking in a public place, not just with the Pharisees, uh, identifying Jesus as being either raving mad and demon-possessed but there's still some that are saying these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? None of them yet see the true significance, I think, of, of either the healing miracles or the words that Jesus had been sharing about eternal life. And so, in a sense, they, they remain blind to the essential truth about Jesus, that he is saviour of of the world um, nor do they stop questioning Jesus uh, they ask him to, to speak plainly and he does we go down to 27 just outside our reading my sheep listen to my voice I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life and they shall never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Great news for us followers of Jesus, but it was fuel on the fire for, for some of the, the Jews and Pharisees that were listening. They wanted to stone him over this, claiming that he was God. They didn't really stop to consider, could this be true? It's kind of funny, I, had, uh, I found myself on the way up here praying as you do when you're going to preach and you're a little bit nervous uh, that uh, God will make things work and, and I found this section that um, God challenged me on the way up to consider what I had scribbled down. Um, I was taking from this an application that it is good to provoke people so that they would be caused to think about these things further. I think I, at the start I mentioned, you know, uh, why is it that Jesus seems to always heal on the Sabbath? Would most people think he seems to heal on the Sabbath a lot of times or am I alone? Yeah, you people know the Bible better than me. Um, because when you actually go and count... Uh, in the Gospels, there's probably 35 miracles that Jesus performs. You know, that includes healing, driving out demons, 
making bread out of less bread, all those sorts of things. 35, seven of them Jesus does on the Sabbath. Two of those are done privately. They're not known by the Pharisees. So only five are actually done on the Sabbath. And, and you know, I'm not too bad at maths and I can actually figure out that that's probably one in six. And I got to understand that Jesus isn't provoking, but what was our word, Robert? Placating. Placating. He wasn't provoking, but he wasn't placating uh, those he came across. Jesus was living his life. He healed on every day of the week. It just so happened that, that the Sabbath is one of those days of the week. And he says, the Father heals on these days. Why should you expect me to be any different? So he allows people to be provoked by living his life for the Father and for us. So instead of having a message that we should go out and provoke people, <laughs> I'd like to change that a little to say that um, the lesson for us is to live our lives for the Father and if people are provoked by that, to take that as an opportunity, to take that as an opportunity to, to get them to think more about our Lord. Again, I find that Jesus insists that we either trust him fully or reject him completely, uh, that there's no in-between. I started with that saying, the, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Well, Jesus' purpose in our story is to bring the lost sheep of Israel and the whole world to himself. He never stops calling. Even those Pharisees who deemed him demon-possessed, he never stopped calling. Our final slide is, is verse 15 to 19 from, from John 17. Here Jesus is praying that the Father will sanctify us. Now, it's a great word, sanctify, isn't it? But, uh, but what does it mean? It, it basically means to make holy or to set apart so he's praying, set my people apart. And verse 18 reads, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus, he's commissioned us to be set apart to continue his purpose in the world. We are to act for the sheep. We are to share that same urgency and passion to reach out to other sheep and help them to hear the shepherd's voice. And I'm convinced that as we begin to embrace Jesus' purpose for us in our situation, with our giftings and abilities, we're not being asked to all become super evangelists or anything like that, but I believe that when we start to, to do that, we start to experience that, that joy and satisfaction of a fulfilled life that Jesus wants us to have. Let me close with a, a final verse from Matthew 10:16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves.
Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank that you are both united in your purpose to do everything you can so that we can choose to follow you, Lord. To, to come back into life and life abundantly. To be in a relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that you have made it so simple for us. You do everything, we just follow. Thank you, Father. And Lord, we pray as, as we, we think about this challenge to, to, um, to put aside those things that we pursue as purposes that, uh, that really don't give us that much satisfaction and, and maybe consider the purpose that you have given us, to join with you in telling people the good news about Jesus. Help us there, Lord. Give us the courage, give us, give us the motivation, Lord, to, to give that a go. We just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>